You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. And if you go out the door, you'll find that it's warm outside. How extraordinary. Melbourne has decided it's going to be warm. And uh, I think that uh, perhaps later on it's going to rain, but who knows. Uh, But it was pretty extraordinary to ride here this morning and find that I wasn't shivering my teeth out. But by the by, moving right along, we've got lots of things to talk about this morning. Uh... Today I'm going to take you to a uh, the inspired work of botanist Eileen Ramsey uh, through an exhibition that Christine Johnson is doing. We had a yarn with Christine about uh, Eileen Ramsey and also her work. Uh, it's on uh, down at the uh, uh, Print Council of Australia Studio Two in. Um, Sturt Street in Southbank and uh, it starts on the 31st of October. We follow with uh, uh, going down the coast and have a chat with Zoe uh, Britton. She's a Deakin University Marine Scientist PhD candidate and protest organiser. She's talking about the seismic testing in the Otway Basin and the rally that is going to be held at the Warrnambool Breakwater on Sunday at 2pm in response to uh, uh, all-out community uh, anger at the concept that uh, this could be uh, something that is considered to be a reasonable thing to do. but, and later on, there's going to be uh, a coverage of Palestinian, re- the response to the attacks on uh, the Gaza Strip. Uh, it's been, um, we're going to hear voices from the Sydney protest. We're going to hear voices from people who were outside RMIT uh, talking about an unholy alliance that uh, RMIT has with uh, Albert, which is uh, the biggest Uh, weapons manufacturing company in the world uh, out of Israel. Uh, Also about uh, Wacker's action on uh, the offices of Albert down in Port Melbourne. Uh, We also go to uh, Coburg where there was a speak out. Uh, The councillors there, uh, Sue Bolton and Monica Hart, responded to community uh, calls for a speak out, and it called, uh, you know, there was up to about a thousand people on Bell Street uh, Reserve on Thursday night uh, talking uh, around what's going on in Gaza. Uh, and then we go to a very sobering event that happened later in the day. Uh, um, 
uh, the state library where medics, doctors came out in support of their dead colleagues uh, after the uh, bombing of the hospital in Gaza where 500 people were killed, uh, health workers and their patients, many children and uh, women were killed there uh, at that site. Very uh, disturbing, disturbing things happening. And this is at the same time as uh, the uh, uh, governments uh, of Australia, America, uh, Europe are all just saying that, uh, sitting on their hands or worse, standing up and saying that the uh, Zionist government in Israel is uh, uh, all action go and supporting their every move, which is, uh, uh, so it's important that uh, many people stand up and say that it's not in my name. And uh, there was an action at Pine Gap as well, and we have a few words from someone who was involved in that. Pine Gap, of course, is our our very own US spy uh, um, establishment up near Alice Springs and uh, they did an action to show, highlight how connected the evil empire really is. Uh, but before we get on to all that, there's other things that are going on. <coughs> Believe it or not, there's so many things going on. There's going to be an emergency rally, Save Our Public Housing, uh, that's being organised by uh, councillors Stephen Jolly, Michael Glynatis and Bridget O'Brien in Yarra. Uh, it's on today. It's at two o'clock and it's going to be down at uh, the park on Hamsworth Street, Collingwood. Speakers including Lydia Thorpe and uh, um, Anab Mohammed uh, Greens and Steph Price from the Victorian Socialists. Uh, the Victorian Labor government, you'll be aware, has announced it will demolish 44 housing towers and replace them with private and inverted commas social housing that will, they say, wipe out public housing and green open spaces on the estates. And uh, it's uh, alleged, <laughs> but it's easy to prove, this will benefit big developers and push diverse communities out of Melbourne. So that's at two o'clock. It's at... Uh, the park on Hamsworth Street, Collingwood, at 2pm. That's today. And, uh, of course, you are aware that there's a big rally in support of Palestine tomorrow at uh, the State Library at 12pm. Um, but before before even that, before we move even on, I've got a, a giveaway. We've become a, a site for give, giveaways. Uh, a client, Acclaimed filmmaker, Josh Fox is in Melbourne, Australia for one-off screening. Now, you might be aware that Josh Fox is the man that was uh, responsible for the film Gasland. He was uh, offered money by one of the fracking companies in America for uh, his land so that they could merrily go along fracking and he started to investigate what fracking's all about and as a consequence, he's become <laughs> um, an environmental activist, playwright, theatre director and he's uh, known for... Uh, he's become a uh, the, one of the uh, best well-known people against... Um, horizontal drilling, fracking and horizontal drilling. His uh, film uh, was an Oscar-nominated, Emmy-winning 2010 documentary. That's Gasland. He's made other things, of course, and he's uh, also a uh, 
a theatre company dire- uh, director in New York City. It's called International Wow, which I thought was great. And he's a journalist. He's written for uh, Rolling Stone, The Daily Beast, Now This, AJ Plus and Huffington's Post. And he gets to be in a uh, Melbourne on November the 1st. And there's going to be a screening at Nova at 6.45pm at Nova. And they're offering us three tickets to that if you ring up 3CR and donate. Make a donation of your choice. And so you can ring me up after this program on 0394198377 within the uh, first half half hour after this show, 9 to 9.30, 039419. 8377 to be part of the audience that's going to be showing The Edge of Nature and uh, Cry of the Glossy. Now, The Edge of Nature is his film. This is what this is a synopsis. Scientists have now have come to call the first six to eight months of the COVID pandemic the anthropause. Uh, anthropause. During this time, industrial fossil fuel pollution plummeted and for the very first time in history, worldwide emissions were reduced enough to halt climate change. In the midst of the global shutdown, Josh Fox, who is suffering from neurological symptoms and cognitive damage from long COVID, isolates himself in a one-room cabin in the hopes that his beloved Pennsylvania forest will heal him. During his nine-month seclusion, he confronts the legacy of genocide and intergenerational trauma that scars the land and his family. His co-stars are a tenacious group of beavers, a young bear mother, howling coyotes and a ton of invasive honeysuckle. Nature may just teach us how to heal ourselves and the lessons of the anthropause may just save the world. And it's, as I said, it's uh, going to be shown with Cry of the Glossy, uh, taking on a journey through the forested hills of New South Wales' southern highlands, poet and gun-eye woman Curly Saunders reflects on the special place the endangered glossy black cockatoo holds in her heart and culture. Now, because you can get tickets um, at, for the Nova event, which is on November the 1st at 6.45 by going online and getting a ticket. But you can also get a free ticket, but it's got strings. You have to give us a call on 0394198377 and make a donation over the phone for 3CR to be part of getting one of the three tickets to see uh, acclaimed filmmaker Josh Fox. You're on... Community Radio 3CR on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library, this Sunday. 
rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're back with Eddie on Solidarity Breakfast and there was one little note that I forgot to give you in advance which is that Kevin again has, uh, he's got, he hasn't got COVID, he has got allergy. It's a cold and he's very weary so he's, uh, say, he says sorry but he'll be back next week. Uh, the heart will go fonder with his absence I'm sure. Uh, we're going to now go and focus on something uh, that's very positive which is... Um, a uh, printmaker, um, artist, uh, Christine Johnson, has uh, has got an exhibition coming up um, on the 31st of October to the 17th of November, and it's called Her Story, Mally Botanist Hilda Eileen Ramsey. And um, it's going to be down at the Print Council of Australia Studio 2 Guild 152 Sturt Street, Southbank. You probably didn't even know it was there. But um, this is the uh, chat I had with um, Christine about this really interesting uh, person. Do you want to tell my listeners a little bit about uh, the botanist uh, Hilda Eileen Ramsey? Yes, sure. Well, known really as Eileen Ramsey, mostly. She was born in the 1880s and died in um, 1961. So the work that she did as a botanist was in the Mallee, which is in the northwest of Victoria. And uh, her, she was sort of a late starter, which is quite encouraging for some of us. Um, she didn't get started till she was in her 60s, uh, but over a period of about 10 years, she amassed um, a considerably large collection of plant specimens and uh, she took this project incredibly seriously. So she corresponded at length with Jim Willis at the herbarium, in, at the, that's the National Herbarium of Victoria at the Royal Botanic Gardens. And uh, this endeavour was both scientific and um, I think... How could I say it? She was passionate. That's, that's the word. She was passionate about this work. And, and that sort of really comes through. When you look at her collection notes, they're very expressive and enthusiastic and sometimes full of little snatches of poetry or observations that are much, you know, beyond, beyond uh, what the ordinary scientific requirements might be. I was really taken by this story because she's talking about something uh, that is uh, a European perception blending into an environment that is barely understood by a European consciousness, isn't she? Well, there's a great tradition of botany um, which really only became a science, I think, in about the 19th or 18th or 19th century. That was kind of a new thing. And, you know, we're, we're looking at people like Joseph Banks, who was, you know, one of the first Europeans to come to Australia. And, of course, William Dampier, um, really the first to ever collect a specimen here. So they were um, the Europeans that came to Australia to collect native flora um, were bringing that, that tradition with them. And as you say, uh, walking onto a landscape that no Europeans had ever visited. So there here was this, you know, vast 
to their eyes, vast, unclassified you know, museum. And I think that awareness of the landscape and its history, um, they didn't have that. Uh, but it's very clear in Eileen's uh, writing that she has an incredibly um, wonderful sensibility around the history of the landscape and its inhabitants. And you really feel this deep sense of history just by being up there. It, it's magic. Something happens to you when you walk into the Mallee. You think, here's this dry, harsh-looking landscape, and yet it sort of welcomes you into it. it you feel connected to the earth. And I was out with some of my old botanical friends fairly recently. One of them, um, Sharon, she'd be in her 80s and she just took her shoes off and she just walked in, in the sand, this marvellous red sand of the Mallee. And her friends just, you know, just needed to feel. She just said, uh, someone commented and she just said, yeah, I just need to feel I just need to feel it under me, under my feet, you know, the land. And I think it's it's a very intimate connection that people can have. And Eileen Ramsey certainly had that feeling for that landscape herself. In fact, uh, I was reading some notes about her. It has a quote from uh, her writings. I wish life was long enough to deal with all its aspects. So much of its almost prehistoric growths and formations are disappearing ever more rapidly. Like she had this sense of the encroachment of farming onto a landscape that was probably not uh, built for it. Oh, you're so right about that, Annie. I mean, she she was, you know, an early conservationist and she, part of her mission in making this record was in response to the rapid development of that region. And we're talking about a semi-arid desert being turned into agricultural land. And, you know, it, in the earlier part of the 20th century when returned soldiers were sent up there to start what they called the soldier settlement, these guys were trying to make, you know, this desert landscape into arable land. And, you know, they fought the battle and a lot of them lost. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it was this that people land hungry with a, the, a sense of a need for place, but with a European perspective, I'd say. Yeah, all the farming practices, um, you know, there, there wasn't a, a deep understanding of how to work with the, with the land. And a lot of um, land was rendered useless once it had been cleared and that there'd been fires and dust storms. You know, I mean, it's very unforgiving. I do know what you're talking about. I mean, I've read some early histories of uh, uh, the uh, European uh, move across the Mallee and am quite amazed at uh, how much cover there was. There was Mallee scrub right across, but it's been meticulously unpicked and removed. Well, all you have to do is fly over it to see as an illustration of what you're having uh, talking about. You look down from the air... Uh, you know, you go up in a small aircraft, which I have sometimes done to get up to Mildura. It's uh, a patchwork, you know, quilt of land holdings. And you see that the uh, original landscape has been reduced to reserves that are, you know, along the Murray um, and then some, you know, some larger patches 
uh, of National Park. And this, um, actually, this uh, is a great moment to, to tell you that Eileen and her cohort of naturalists were so passionate about preserving their landscape that they were the ones that petitioned um, the government to create the Hatter Lakes National Park. And I found the very first note where Les Chandler, who was also um, a veteran of the First World War, he was the person at their very one of their early meetings of the Sunraysia Field Naturalist Club in, in around 1949. He moved that the Hatter Lakes area um, be made into a national park. And there it was in, you know, beautiful cursive uh, ink writing, this, this idea. And that became a reality some years later. And right above the Hatter Lakes National Park, there is a very interesting property, uh, which is a private property where the owners, Fiona and Phil Murdoch, are committed conservationists and they are revegetating that landscape, which has been destroyed by agricultural uh, practices. And they are diligently restoring that landscape. And it, it's so inspiring to see what they have done. It really is. It's, it's just marvellous. And uh, actually, Fiona has written the introduction um, to the catalogue for, for my exhibition. And uh, all of, a lot of their work refers um, back then to the Eileen Ramsey collection because that's where all the information lies. It's a very important collection. Oh, look, this is such a, a um, fantastic uh, story. Uh, I mean, I was going to then talk about how she uh, worked in with the Melbourne University campus that was opened in Mildura uh, because yeah. a, a formal education was, uh, she was excluded really from formal education in this area, but she was persistent. Absolutely, she was. And um, actually, Fiona makes a marvellous point about that because she she was denied a place um, in the university to study botany. And um, I'll just read you this little bit from Fiona's speech. Six de decades on, it was Eileen's specimens, now housed in the National Herbarium of Victoria, that were drawn on by elite bot botanists to verify the identity of the, um, the plant that was just recently found, um, the little... Uh, bearded flat sedge, uh, which this was in the news a few few weeks right. back. Uh, yeah, uh, and uh, Fiona says here, I think she would have been chuffed and probably pretty smug about this. So good on her. Let's talk about your exhibition and what you do. Yes, sure. Um, I would like that. I feel that I have been enormous. I am enormously indebted to the people who have. Uh, made Eileen's collection um, available. And the first person who did that was um, Heather Lee in, at the Mildura Art Centre where Eileen's collection was before it was sent to the herbarium for um, remounting and to be absorbed into that collection. It was there that I first saw it and that's where my project started. I was so inspired by what I saw. Um, very tattered old manila folders tied up with pink ribbon and, uh, you know, holding all these dried up specimens. And it was with some locals in Mildura, um, more plant people, uh, that I went out into the landscape with them. This was with Marion and Peter Lang from the Native Plant Society. And they showed me along the river 
um, you know, we went sort of tracing through Eileen's collection to see where she'd found plants. And then so I started to look for them with their help. Um, and ever since they've been taking me out because now I'm absolutely hooked on this place. Um, so I would collect plants. Um, you're not allowed to take them out of the national parks, but they would supply me from their gardens or we would see them um, and, you know, photograph them and so on. And I could then make, uh, I made a series of cyanotypes as my starting point, which is a really lovely old-fashioned process, uh, sun prints, they're called, uh, where you get a kind of ghost image uh, and your paper turns a marvellous deep blue uh, when you do that. And that sort of reminded me very much of the deep blue of the Mildura sky. And so that was my first uh, foray into using Eileen's work as inspiration and it's evolved over the last, well, nearly a decade. So the works that are in this current um, forthcoming exhibition are a kind of distillation of the experience of being out there and perhaps an echo of Eileen's uh, experience of the landscape too, of the kind of intimacy that you have with it. I would used the specimens to draw from at home. I had my plant friends would send them down to me in boxes, carefully wrapped and, you know, um, beautifully labelled and everything. And I could draw from these plants in my studio in Melbourne. And the drawings I did with pastels. And there's just something about the softness and, and the dryness of, of uh, using pastel on paper that seemed to really evoke something of that Mallee landscape to me and that's from those drawings I developed the prints that are the series um, that I've titled her story Hilda Eileen Ramsey being her initials um, and they are the works that are on at the Print Council of Australia a new gallery in Sturt Street in South Bank. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, it's not quite open yet is it? No, it opens on the 31st of October and goes to the 17th of November. So we'll be hanging the exhibition this coming week. Oh, how very exciting. It's very exciting, I think. Um, uh, what are you hoping uh, for your uh, for the people who go and have a look? I mean, people can go and look at art and people think of art as being a product, but it's more than that, isn't it? Well, I really hope so. I mean, art is really meant to um, give something that makes people experience something new. And uh, in a way, I would like to say, come and see how fantastic Eileen Ramsey was, but also come and see what grows in this landscape um, to be inspired by it to make their own um, investigations into the natural world because it's not just the Mallee where all these treasures are. They're all around us. And I think, you know, perhaps since COVID, people have found a much more intimate connection with nature. You know, people are watching their birds and voting for favourite birds. <laughs> I mean, there's a... it's, And I think the awareness of conservation and the need for it is is really vivid now and I think the best way to educate people about what we need to look after is to bring them in and just see how wonderful it all is. You've got to love it to want to look after it. 
Oh, yeah, you do. Uh, there's a really nice quote from the National Gallery about your work. It says, forging links between botany, art and science, Christine's exploration of historical narratives and native fauna raise pertinent questions about our relationship with the environment, place and belonging. I just thought that was such a fabulous uh, tribute to your work. That's lovely of you to say that, Annie. When I read it, I also thought, that's exactly what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I've never really been able to find the right phrases, but that, that really is it. And so I very gently want to point people towards this precious land that we live in and say, look what we've got, look at these treasures. We've really got to look after them. And in doing that, I'm also echoing Eileen Ramsey. So I'm so indebted to her as the source of inspiration. But then the next step is go out and feel it and Fall in love with it and look after it. Thanks for talking to me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much, Annie. I've enjoyed speaking with you. And that was Christine. Uh, uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, I've lost my place. Christine Johnson, of course. Christine Johnson, who uh, is... Uh, uh, hanging at this, probably at this moment, the exhibition that's inspired by the work of the botanist Eileen Ramsey. And it's her story, Matt, uh, Mally botanist Eileen, Hilda Eileen Ramsey. And it's down at the uh, Print Council of Australia, Studio 2 Guild, 152 Sturt Street, South Bank, and it starts on the 31st of October, goes to the 17th of November, and uh, there's going to be an opening on the 2nd of November at 5 o'clock to 7 p.m. Just to remind you that if you're interested in tickets, uh, three tickets I've got for Josh Fox, the uh, documentarian, uh, and many other things of uh, he made Gaslands, you would have been aware of that. There's a one off screening, it's going to be at the Nova. 1st of November, he'll be there, 6.45pm, and he's showing his film The Edge of Nature with a short cry of the glossy. Uh, it's If you ring after the program at 9, uh, at uh, 94198377 and make a donation to 3CR, you can have one of those tickets. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. A, uh, logging operation. Any person found within this coop is offending. Can they please leave? You're allowed no closer than the bridge down the track there. Any person that's found in the coop will be arrested and charged. <laughs> I direct that you all leave now. Gecko's turning 30 and we're having a party. The Goongra Environment Centre has been fighting to protect East Gippsland's forest since 1993 and we want a party with you. There'll be music, performances, food, drink, old friends and new friends. What better way to celebrate the end of native forest logging in Victoria? From December 1st to the 3rd in Goongra, East Gippsland. To find out more, go to gecko.org.au. Gecko, 30 years fighting for forests. Get down to the party. Celebrate with us. A 3CR supporter.
You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we're going to go down the coast now. I had a chat with uh, Zoe Britton. She's a a marine science PhD candidate at Deakin University down there. And uh, she's a protest organiser. She's working with uh, the uh, Gunjamara-led Southern Ocean Protection Embassy Collective. And they are spearheading a uh, rally on uh, Sunday, the uh, 22nd, down at Warrnambool Breakwater uh, at 2pm against potentially... uh, multinational seismic testing of the Otway Basin and I had a chat with her about why this is such an offence to nature. There's been a rally called to try and defend um, the uh, Otway Basin from seismic uh, testing. Now uh, Zoe you're a Deakin University Marine Science PhD candidate. can you get my listeners some understanding of what this seismic testing might look like and why it's such a an offence to nature? Yeah, and that's such a great question because often the way we've found that uh, it is described or the process is described by these companies going through the consultation process is not actually in line with the science and we've been quite frustrated with that. You shouldn't have to have a university degree to be able to understand what's being proposed in your own local environment. Essentially what's happening is this is actually the largest proposed seismic testing area in the entire world. Um, This type of 3D seismic testing has not been done to this scale in this region before and has not been done this close to shore. Effectively what they do is blast incredibly loud sound waves down to the ocean floor and that's how they map it. It sort of bounces back and that gives them the shape. But we're talking, um, you know, incredibly loud noise, you know, something that you would not be able to be around like in a workplace or like at all, even with ear protection. And so if we're talking about the local environment, some can seem a bit obvious to people, you know, mammals like whales or, or seals that might have ears similar to ours, it can seem pretty straightforward of how that would impact. So right down to the very uh, building blocks. So we know this sound is actually so loud that all our little microscopic plankton um, that are often, you know, swimming around in the oceans, but also reproductive um, plankton that are sort of spawned by things like abalone or even seaweeds will put out little microscopic babies into the water column. This sound is so loud it actually explodes them. So we're talking about potentially, you know, wiping out an entire reproductive generation. Things like abalone in particular, um, they don't breed year to year. They might have like boom and bust breeding years where they'll maybe every five years they'll have a really big season and if we test in that season you know we're wiping out potentially an entire generation and we only know this about abalone because they're commercially important so imagine how many other species out there that we just don't have the data on that are potentially impacted for generations to come and we're really just being quite frustrated with how this data is being presented is often they'll say oh well you don't have data to prove harm but they don't have data to prove safety either yeah it's quite extraordinary isn't it i mean what they're taught they're proposing for this uh is creation of a a, 
an underwater desert, really, isn't it? They're, they're, that's what they're creating with this kind of, uh, uh, you know, mad approach to commercial uh, investigation. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's just very strange. And you even see with the whales, they'll say, oh, we'll all stop testing if we see a whale that gets close. But, you know, whales communicate over hundreds of kilometres. And we know from whaling times that whales are so good at communicating with each other that their migration routes changed in response to whaling pressures, even for whales that never experienced themselves. So pretty much their mates told them, don't come here, it's not safe, and they were able to change it. And so that's the sort of impacts we're talking about. It's not just on the animals that are present there exactly when it's happening, but it's all the other animals that migrate through the area. It's also their future generations. The thing that's so interesting about the coalition that is calling the uh, rally on Sunday is that it's uh, Indigenous, uh, uh, commercial, scientific, and the councils are all so up against it. Yeah, I know. And this, like, for me, was such a big thing. You know, we've got a rally organised by, you know, commercial fishermen alongside people who ran for Animal Justice Party, you know? Like, that doesn't happen too often but that's really um especially in light of you know what happened last weekend with with the the vote the local community has really come around um like Gurunchamara indigenous people here in Warrnambool who are really opposed to this and said no we agree with you we're here standing with you because we can all see how important um their care and their custodianship of this area is well, I was really taken by Councillor Angie pa Paspaliaris's comment from the Warrnambool Council that Australia doesn't have a gas supply problem. 80% of Australia's uh, gas is exported. And in fact, this is really about uh, multinational companies and their shareholders, uh, a, a fight against uh, a Goliath, against the local communities. Yeah, and it's a real shame, this whole consultation process that they're legally required to go through. We put a question to them that we have recorded. It was from an online webinar that if, you know, traditional owners came out in complete, you know, unity and said, we don't want seismic testing on our cultural lands and waters, what would their response be? And they let us know that if there's a blanket opposition they don't actually have to consider it at all because all this consultation is about what, how and when. It's not actually about if it goes ahead. And as a scientist, that's really concerning to me because that sort of suggests, well, there's never going to be enough data that we can show to prove that, like, this is just not safe. The council's position, they said that they're going to go into bat at a federal level. And uh, it's interesting because uh, this pitting different power interests and against uh, what is basically fossil fuel exploration, when in actual fact all the, the evidence is that fossil fuel should be in the ground and that um, federally they keep saying, oh, yes, we're going to be a, have a sustainable future. But the question is when and what's at stake, isn't it? It is. And, I mean, being, you know, a rural regional area down here in Warrnambool, this idea about, you know, having more gas and more fossil fuels is quite frustrating for us because you see, you know, in Gippsland and you see in other places in Victoria where 
you know, it's no longer tenable for companies over there to continue their coal-powered operations, their fossil fuel operations, and that's having, like, socially and economic devastating impacts on those communities. And so the idea that, you know, this is a good idea to do down here, it makes it feel like, well, are we, is that what we're going to be at, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now if, if this is the road they're going to take? So it doesn't make sense environmentally, it doesn't make sense socially, culturally, or really economically if you look in the long term. And it's interesting, too, that there's been a couple of legal cases that have actually kiboshed this same process in Western Australia and the Tiwi Islands. Yeah, and we're hoping that, like, we're able to support um, Yaron, who's one of our great speakers who'll be at the rally and other Gununjumara peoples, to really, like, assert their right to be able to have a say on what happens on their sea country. You know, here... In Warrnambool, we are home to the longest ongoing culture in the world. The level of depth of understanding and connection they have to these waters, you know, a scientist could only dream of having that level of scale of, of understanding. And if they're saying this is not safe, this cannot go ahead, that needs to be respected. And I think, you know, the courts and, um, you know, Western scientists are finally catching up with that. And, you know, we just need these sort of organisations to learn that lesson as well. Now, country areas like Warrnambool, I mean, Warrnambool's quite a large area, a city, but actually for people to stand up and be politically active is not the norm. It is not the norm, is it? So this is a really important issue, isn't it, to the local community? Yeah, it really is. It's... um been really heartening to see how many different people. So it's been led by SOPEC, which is um, an Indigenous group to protect the Southern Ocean. But we, like you mentioned before, we've got fishermen, we've got, you know, everyday people, uh, a lot of mums and dads who are concerned about the future of this area for their kids. And it's just sort of touched so many people because it's got such far-reaching um, consequences that everyone has really sort of stepped up to the plate and understood that this is important. We, we even look at the university. We know the science does not support this being able to go ahead in a safe manner. But we also worry here at Warrnambool, we feel so lucky to have a university campus down here. We already struggle with things like brain drain, losing qualified people to the cities. And we're just really worried about even the future of the marine science program down here. Because if young students are seeing, you know, devastation in the local marine environment, what's to say they won't choose another marine science program somewhere else that's not facing these issues? So, so many, such a complex repercussions of doing this that it's meant that everyone sort of got off their butts and is really wanting to get involved. I'm interested in the fact that uh, according to the MUA, the Maritime Union of Australia, that in that area there are about 22 uh, platforms already needing to be decommissioned in the uh, in the um, that area. Uh, I find it really fascinating that uh, these companies uh, are allowed to uh, sideline every other element. Uh, in the question of uh, our future as a country over everything else, even though they leave such detritus behind. Yeah, and part of my research, so I'm actually a seaweed scientist. Like I look at all the lovely different types of seaweed we have down here. And part of my work is actually, you know, 
asking these big questions when it comes to seaweed aquaculture around, you know, what do we, what does everyone mean when they say the word sustainable? What does this mean to different groups of people from different walks of life? And from that research, we've really seen that often industry can be out of step with what the local community expects, and they expect whole life cycle um you know, sort of looking at these operations. It's not good enough that just when it operates, it's done well. It needs to be the end, it needs to be the start, it needs to be all working together. And I think we're seeing that more from this pressure where people are like, hang on, why are they being able to continue looking for more when they're not sort of cleaning up their act from where what they were just doing? Like, is that good enough? And are we going to allow that to happen? And so this rally, it's at 2pm, it's at the breakwater in Warrnambool. I, the locals will be there. Are you hoping that other people might turn up as well? Because it's a tourist area, Warrnambool, and this whole coast. Yeah, we would love to see anyone who's able to make the trip down. That's why we've made it a bit later in the afternoon, around 2pm. So if anybody wants to come down for a drive and, and show their support, that's a, that's available. Um, also, just if you see any of the events or media that we're doing on social media to just share that around and get, and get the word out. We'll have a few actions available on the day, we'll hear from some local speakers, but have some letter writing and some mailing lists you can um, sign up to to help like keep pressure on and really make sure that this doesn't get through. Okay, thanks very much for talking to me. Oh, no worries. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for showing interest. I think this is a really important issue. Yeah, and that was uh, Zoe Britton. She's a Deakin University marine scientist and PhD candidate and protest organiser, anti-seismic testing in the Otway Basin. The rally is Sunday the 22nd, 2pm at the Warrnambool Breakwater. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. Because the Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. Everybody should be standing here today saying, free Palestine. Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Bumbanja nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty. We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. And all through the week, there have been responses to the attacks in uh, Gaza. 
and uh, first up, we're going to hear from uh, the rally that happened in Sydney. And this is a recording that came from our great friend, Vivian Langford. Um, it's important because uh, to play a little bit of that rally because in Sydney, they were actually threatened and told that they weren't allowed to rally. Now, this is not just about uh, what happened in Gaza then. It becomes an issue of freedom of speech. And that's the context of the uh, beginning of this particular recording. So uh, this is from Sydney last week on the 15th. We've seen over the last week uh, an incredible, hysterical, repressive, anti-protest, anti-democratic uh, environment whipped up by our politicians and by the media and including, shamefully, by our Premier Chris Minns. Now, we need to be very clear about this. We will not stop protesting for Palestine. Nothing they do will ever stop us from protesting for Palestine. We will never stand by and watch a genocide take place and do nothing. Now, we know that it is one of the longest and oldest uh, tricks in the book, if you like, is to slander Palestine activists as being anti-Semitic. We have to be very clear about this. Our movement is absolutely against anti-Semitism. We denounce it. It has nothing in common with what we're fighting for. Ours is a movement against racism. That's exactly what we're fighting for. The Palestinians are treated brutally. They're described as animals, as cockroaches by the Zionist state of Israel. That's what we're against. We're against the state of Israel. We're never against Jewish people. And there is a long and proud and wonderful history of many Jews around the world being part of our movement for a free Palestine. And we'll be hearing today from two speakers from the Jewish community uh, to reinforce that point. These are people who are not uh, you know, new to our movement. These are people who have been protesting for decades for a free Palestine. So we have to be clear today, as I said, even if we do everything absolutely 100% perfectly, the media will denounce us as anti-Semites anyway. We know that's true. <laughs> However, it obviously does not help that on the Monday night protest we held after our rally, a tiny, tiny group of people did actually chant anti-Semitic slogans. <laughs> so we have to be totally clear that today and for every future protest, None of that will ever happen again. And if anyone even begins to chant such slogans, everyone around them must and will tell them to shut up, that this is not what we're about. Doing that is not only uh, wrong and racist in its own right, as we know, it massively harms the Palestinian cause for people to do that. It gives the media, who want to denounce us anyway, a free kick which we definitely do not want to give them. Anyone who is a true supporter of Palestine would never make such a chant. Okay, on another vein, uh, we know the media and the police and the government are looking for any excuse to try to crack down on our right to protest. So that's another thing we need to be very clear on today. Today we must be disciplined, we must be very peaceful, um, and that's true even if people try to provoke us, and we can't rule that out. 
that there will be people today who try to cause trouble, who try to, you know, pretend they're part of our protest while here to cause trouble, or people who come from outside uh, trying to provoke us. We need to be very clear, we need to be very calm, we need to ignore them, we need to be disciplined, because we need uh, to fight and to continue to demand our right to protest in this state. And on that front, we have already lodged the paperwork to say that next Saturday, the 21st of October, we are going to be holding another protest at Town Hall. And we are going to be marching on our streets, as is our right, as is our basic democratic right. Now, what happens today will partly determine how the courts and the government look upon that. So again, it's why we need to be extra disciplined today so that we have an extra basis to fight for our right to protest next week. Whatever happens, we will protest next week. Let me be clear, we will not stop. But we don't want to give them a free kick or any extra ammunition. Palestine will be free! Peter Slezak. Peter is a beautiful Jewish old man. Peter has been a voice It's a privilege for me to be here today on this very difficult time. Let me begin by adding some remarks to what Josh said. Um, my parents were survivors of the Holocaust. I think I know anti-Semitism when I see it. I grew up with their stories. I want to say that I want to pay particular tribute publicly to the organisers of this rally, like every other rally over the years that I've had the privilege to attend and to speak at. I want to pay tribute particularly to the Palestinian community and all of you for clearly and loudly saying each time, as we just did, that we reject anti-Semitism and it's not anti-Jewish to protest the crimes of the State of Israel. I'm one of the very many Jews here and around the world, it's important to know, who are distressed and shamed, not for the first time, by what Israel has been doing in our name. I'm privileged here in Australia and elsewhere to have very dear Palestinian friends here and in Palestine. And I'm devastated to see, not for the first time, their anguish, their heartbreak, the horrors and the suffering that they have to endure. But like many Jews, I also have close family in Israel and I share their grief over the atrocities and loss that they have suffered. We must be able, as many Jews have been saying recently, to grieve and mourn both Palestinian and Israeli deaths. Israeli and Western leaders have actually dehumanized the Palestinians, but the response from us cannot be to dehumanize the Israelis. If we lose our moral consistency, we weaken the Palestinian cause. Thank you. Speaking to the Jews, one Jewish writer has said just today that our humanity is being put to the test. This is now in relation to the tragedy, the awful things happening in Gaza. It's in the same spirit that a rabbi in New York has just said, and I won't read it all. He said that even as we mourn our dead in Israel, we must acknowledge and protest the genocide Israel is currently perpetrating against the Palestinians. 
he went on at some length, but he said that if we ignore this reality without commenting and committing uh, ourselves to the cause, without uh, fighting actively for the Palestinian people, we will be complicit in this horrible bloodshed. So, And we'll leave that because uh, there were so many other things that happened during the week. Uh, one of them was a demonstration that uh, happened outside RMIT. Uh, this, is, uh, this was uh, married to an event that uh, happened down in Port Melbourne, which was uh, when WACA, the, uh, um, uh, which is uh, the uh, members of whist whistleblowers, activists and uh, Communities Alliance, WACA, occupied the Port Melbourne foyer offices of Israeli weapons manufacturer Albert Systems. Uh, they uh, brought the message straight to them. The Palestinian death toll in Gaza since October the 7th is more than 3,500, they say, surpassing the total number of Palestinians killed in Israeli attacks in any year since before 2008. Now, um, Albert is... Uh, has its offices down in Port Melbourne, but they also have a uh, partnership with RMIT and members of the RMIT community uh, protested on the corner of La Trobe and uh, uh, Swanston Street on Thursday to show their displeasure. In July 2014, the Hermes 900, it was the next development of the Hermes 450. The, Her the Hermes 900 was much is much larger than the 450 and it has, in inverted commas, advanced warfare capabilities. The Hermes 900's development was close to completion by July 2014 and three days of intensive preparations by the Israeli Air Force, the De Israeli Defence Ministry and Albert saw one Hermes 900 the new drone, one Hermes 900 ready for its first combat, so-called combat mission over Gaza on 15 July 2014. The four boys were killed the next day on 16 July. Yay! The Hermes 900 flew for, 30, flew for a month over Gaza in July, August 2014, during which time Albert personnel maintained it and guided the operators during the so-called combat flights. The, the new 900 was officially introduced into the Israeli Air Force's operational lineup on 11 November 2015, but was not declared fully operational until August 2017. In July, August 2014, it was being tested over Gaza. RMIT claims to be, if you look at RMIT's website, they claim to be deeply committed to our positive impact in the world. To be, to be, to be number one, number one globally for our efforts to reduce inequality. And RMIT claims to hold itself to the highest ethical standards. By partnering with Albert, RMIT is arming the Israeli military. RMIT is complicit, and it chooses to be complicit. It has made an active choice to be complicit in Israel's current onslaught against Gaza and the resulting humanitarian crisis. RMIT is complicit in Israeli
bloody war crimes, including the deliberate targeting of children and civilian men and women, RMIT is complicit in the incremental, relentless ethnic cleansing of East Jerusalem and the West Bank. RMIT is complicit in Israeli apartheid, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and the Israeli human rights organisation, Beteslam, all accuse Israel of establishing an apartheid regime. RMIT is complicit in Israel's overall strategic goal of erasing Palestine as a geographical, political and cultural entity. Some people would call that genocide. Free, free Palestine! You're, you're from RMIT, you're uh, pretty angry about Albert being here. Yeah, I mean, I'm a staff member at RMIT and I've been witnessing the total injustice of this partnership between RMIT and Albert Systems where uh, they're supposedly uh, developing autonomous uh, vehicle capacity, AI capacity for flood relief, bush, bush fire disaster responses, but actually we know how these weapons are tested, and they're tested on Palestinian people. But we also know that RMIT has other partnerships, including with uh, with Boeing, with with Tails, with Rheinmetall, uh, with BAE Systems, um, and their stocks are skyrocketing with the war right now. It is just appalling. Um, you know, solidarity with Palestinians here also means solidarity with West Papuans solidarity with people in the Western Sahara, all the places where these weapons are being tested. And as an RMIT staff member, I say not in my name, Elbit out of RMIT. Yes, and so that was uh, bringing a uh, shining a light on the fact that uh, what's going on in Gaza is actually having uh, ripple effects right across the world, and uh, why all these different governments in the West are in lockstep with uh, the Israeli government's attack on Gaza to the extreme that it's taking. Uh, Shoshana spoke to me. She uh, uh, was uh, part of. She was a spokesperson for the uh, uh, group that uh, actually took the uh, the demonstration to Pine Gap outside Alice Springs. This is uh, what uh, she had to say. So um, it was a snap action organized by basically just a, a, an activist block in Mpantwe in, in Alice Springs. The decision was to protest this particular sort of military base partly because they are, um, it's actually a spy base that is partly involved in sort of 
furthering um, surveillance technology and other things um, in collaboration with both the U.S. and the Israeli government. And we, of course, know that by extension, this kind of surveillance technology and, and you know, related weaponry, military tactics and so on are, are being currently used against Palestinians and specifically against people in, in Gaza. Uh, just for context, I'm actually based in Nam, so I've been sort of providing the sort of off-site stuff and I've been keeping keeping track of sort of the, the action as it's been developing through the day from the outside, just just as a sort of safety precaution. Um, so every the, the group got there at about 5 a.m., uh, in pathway time and set up so we we had one person Jem in particular she was attached to a very heavy barrel and locked into it in the middle of the road that was um yeah blocking the blocking the path to pine gap um Jem basically offered the jewish uh, mourners what we call the mourners kaddish so the mourners prayer to mourn for all of the gazans lost specifically to also mourn for, and there is also footage of Jem repeating their names of all the families who were completely, uh, who were killed so absolutely that, in, you know, an entire bloodline was removed from the civil registry, basically. Um, and that was the sort of, that was the, the core of the action. Was there any reaction from Pine Gap itself, or was, are they just uh, disassociating themselves from what's been going on? Certainly, um, certainly, I, I have not heard us receiving any direct communiques from Pine Gap, but I will say that from an underground reporter that we have as part of the block, it's reported that at least around 100 employees were actually not able to access their workplace um, this morning. So even if Pine Gap is choosing to not interact, we still managed to ruin their day a little bit, and that's something. Very interesting because there's been a major uh, reactions from people all around the world. And yeah. uh, it's very important that uh, in Alice Springs where there's a node of the spy system is mm-hmm. uh, that there is actually a reaction, isn't there? Absolutely. And this is, this is you know, in, in many ways we have, um, you know, there's a short-term goal to this, um, to this blockade which is the word demanding a ceasefire in Gaza yesterday. You know, that is, that's, the, that's the core, that is the most immediate thing. But the reality is that this protest is also showing us the connections between the military in uh, Australia and the military elsewhere. We're also, we want to really highlight the connection between the military as a thing, as a unit that exists, and how that interacts with colonization, both the colonization of people in Gaza and also the colonization of uh, Aboriginal people and other First Nations peoples in Australia and Turtle Islands and and elsewhere. This protest is about highlighting all of those interconnectivities and and the ways in which even those of us that might feel a particular way but still choose to turn away, we cannot help but be embroiled, involved, enmeshed with this genocide and with other um, with with other similar genocides um, and issues that are coming up elsewhere around the globe. In fact, there was uh, quite strong statements from local indigenous people in support of their Palestinian uh, compatriots. Yep. So we were very fortunate that we had a speaker, a narrative speaker, who uh, both shared 
um, Wood from his auntie and also spoke about his own um, experience as an Aboriginal man, sort of witnessing um, witnessing God and witness and seeing the connections, seeing the connective tissue between these two experiences of, of oppression and colonization and massacres and genocide uh, and so on. So yes, with uh, you know, um, it's it's been it's been huge to be able to see that solidarity. And and I I personally, as someone who also has skin in the game, have have been very um, encouraged by that. Um, so the, the last thing, and I think the thing that is really vital here, you know, and perhaps a question that some people looking at it from the outside might have is, boy, there's a lot of Jews involved in this kind of anti-Israel, pro-Palestine, you know, Gaza liberation thing. What What's going on there? And the thing is that Jews are angry. Those of us that know that we've been fed lies about Zionism, that we've been fed lies about the sort of the idea that the existence of the state of Israel gives us safety, particularly Jews that do not live in Israel, is is, in, is infuriating. And ultimately, and this is this is sort of echoing um, what has been coming out of other Jewish-led protests. The reality is that we are doing this because we refuse to have these things happen, this genocide happen in our name as Jews. They're telling the world that they're doing this for Jews. And Jews are now kicking back and saying, you are not doing this for me. This is not for me. This is not about me. And I do not benefit from it in in any way, shape or form. And we all suffer from it. So I feel like that's just the last thing that I'd really like to be included in this. And that was Shoshana, who was speaking as spokesperson for uh, a group that were uh, taking the uh, protest uh, to Alice Springs, uh, Pine Gap, uh, part of the spy node that uh, is uh, instrumental in uh, being able to uh, uh, activate the uh, weaponry against people in Gaza and across the world. Uh, there was a massive rally, really, about about a 1,000 people, a speak-out uh, in Coburg. This was organised by councillors uh, Sue Bolton and uh, Monica Hart from Meribic uh, Council in response to uh, local con- constituents wanting somewhere to uh, speak out about uh, what's going on. Uh, here's just a little uh, fragment. Uh, I'll put uh, more of it on... Uh, the podcast. Tell me what you think. I think that apartheid always brings violence. It's absolutely inevitable. And the system that's there with the Palestinians being isolated, the way the and the barriers put up by the Israelis on the Palestinians are unsustainable. And it's absolutely inevitable that they either, um, that there will be violence when you treat people this way. And there's no solution that can possibly be with the agreed territories being now settled by Jewish people from around the world when the local inhabitants have been moved off that land. And so... I think it's incredibly sad, but absolutely inevitable. What did you have an opinion about uh, the uh, actions of our government and, say, the Americans and others? You know, giving the impression that this is a one-sided affair. Well, we keep talking about 
truth and they're not being honest. The history of the setting up of Israel and the history has made this violence inevitable. The way we're supporting one side means it will go on forever. We must insist that there be a fair and just resolution. And that won't come by having uh, the Palestinian state isolated the way it is. Um, that's why you've come today. Uh, and it's a talk out. We're in Coburg and uh, there's going to be a talk, uh, talk out, a speak up about Palestine and uh, the issue of the bombings that are going on. I just think it's such a tragedy. It, the, to expect that the Palestinians would sit back while there's settlements being done on the West Bank, it, it's just an absolutely absurd to suggest that and to suggest they can live in such a crowded area with the Israelis having full control of their borders, it just can't go on that way. So, of course, at some stage, you, you do have this bursting out. Um, there's a sense of uh, lack of natural justice going on, isn't there? I think there is. I, I saw, for example, The Age had the headline about babies being beheaded. Further down, it actually said that that wasn't actually true. Now, this was a headline, and to not publish that we actually had it wrong, I think that's an incredible da dangerous mistake. For Even President Biden quoted about the tra awful things he'd seen, and then later we hear that he hadn't actually seen them. Well, that mm. just can't be how we tell the world about what's going on. You know, that's funny because uh, in the First World War, when there was the propaganda against the Hun, as it were, they talked about them basically eating babies. It's, it's the same sort of propaganda, isn't it? Uh, we always try to demonise the people we don't like. That's just always happened and it always will. But our media and a president of the United States, of the democratic world, he should get it right. And when he gets it wrong, the statement we got it wrong should be made as loud as the original statement. And there was a lot more to that event. But I want to finish the program with uh, uh, some words from uh, people who gathered uh, on uh, the steps of State Library on Thursday. This was directly in response to the bombing of the hospital in Gaza that killed 500 people. These were all medics. Uh, these were doctors and nurses who stood there in the dark in front of the State Library on Thursday. Can I talk to you? I'm from uh, 3CR. It's a community from 3CR. I'm a community radio station, um, and uh, I'd like to know who you are and why you're standing here out in front of uh, Victoria State Library. My name is Saeed Al Taba. I'm one of the uh, Muslim Australian community here. Uh, as uh, you are aware of what's happening in Gaza, in, specifically in, in, in Palestine at the moment, and uh, the entire Gaza Strip is under attack uh, by the occupation, by the state of the occupation. 
and we are here just to raise the awareness and raise our voice uh, for the officials, for the government, for the Australian government, uh, who uh, shamely supported the occupation by giving them uh, a cover and a license to kill the Palestinians who are the owners of the land. As we are aware, just a few days ago, we have the referendum within the Australian Constitution just to say yes or no to recognize the original, the Aboriginals people, the owners of the land in Australia. Uh, I think it's just a common sense for any logical person to say yes for the Palestinians to gain their rights back uh, to live on their own lands and to kick out the occupation. And I see that your sign says trauma last generations. Are you, is this in specific uh, connection to the bombing of the uh, hospital in Gaza? Spot on. So we are just a group of doctors, nurses, uh, people who works in the uh, medical industry here in, in Melbourne. Uh, just in, uh, this is just a natural response for any human being, not only for doctors or pe people who work in, in the health sector in Australia, uh, a natural response to, uh, uh, to put this uh, in, in, in practice. Uh, came, we all came, as you can see, we all came with our uh, uh, work, work suits as well, nurses, doctors, pharmacists, uh, men, and, and men and women, uh, uh, just in response to the attack to the brutal attack uh, that uh, uh, that happened to uh, the hospital Al Ma'madani Hospital in in Gaza, more than 500 uh, people, civilians killed, and we have seen photos, uh, absolutely brutal photos, uh, by uh, they, they, those those kids and those uh, uh, medical doctors, those nurses, they've been killed in very cold blood. And they have a license from the West, from a country like Australia. Shamely, I feel for the first time in my life, I feel like I'm an Australian. I shouldn't be an Australian if Australia, this is what the Australian government is representing. To give a license for uh, an occupation army to kill civilians who are only fighting for their rights for their lands. Can I talk to you? I'm from 3CR and I was wondering if you would speak to me about why you're standing here tonight. Um, so I am a doctor and I'm here um, today to represent all the doctors and healthcare workers that have been killed by Israel in Gaza the last two or three days by the hospital that was bombed. Um, as a healthcare worker I know that uh, for example in Australia we are short doctors and I know that the detrimental effects this has on our population and on the health of our um, I guess our, uh, our people here in Australia. So the lack of doctors and healthcare workers in Gaza now is going to significantly impact their um, short-term, long-term um, health. It's going to be detrimental um, to the community. And I am here to represent, I guess, healthcare workers all around the world, not just in Gaza. We do not deserve to be killed because we are helping humanity um, and standing up, I guess, for what's happening that is not right. You're not combatant. No, 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 we're not. I'm just here for healthcare workers that are being killed, hmm. for doing their job, for helping people. I mean, that's, that's the oath we take to enter medical school and our specialty training is to do no harm and yet we're inflicted with harm. So that's why I'm here today. I just second what Dr. Amira said. Um, I have nothing to add. It's just, uh, it's, it's just unfair that yeah, blaming um, Gaza and people there.
and while they are well the people being occupied and they were just defending themselves yeah it's not a war it's a genocide I'm from 3CR. 3CR? Yeah, yeah, and I'm finding out why you guys are standing here today. All ah, right. Do you want to tell me why you're I here? I will, yep. So my name is Shazia and I am a doctor in Melbourne. Um, we're here today to say enough is enough. Um, it's one thing to be in a lopsided war. It's another thing to go against the Geneva Convention um, and bomb hospitals, doctors, nurses and patients. So we're here to say to our brothers and sisters in Gaza in this conflict, we see you. We hear you. You are better than us. We could never do what you are doing. Your patients are dying, your families are dying, and still you serve humanity. And we want to show you that we support you, we're behind you, and we want to call on our Australian government and all the medical bodies in, in our country to basically say enough is enough. Yeah. That's why we're here. Thank you. Can I speak to you? You were saying that you're a rural uh, practitioner. Yes, I am. Where are you from? Sorry. I'm from 3CR. I'm a community radio reporter and I'm wondering why you're here today. I promise I won't move any of your statements around or anything like that. It will just be as you say it, okay? Oh, thanks for the opportunity. Yes, my name is Shiraz. I'm a GP and I've travelled um, all the way down from a small town near Shepparton. I, I work as a rural GP part-time yep. and I've also worked um, for some time in uh, various healthcare centres within Melbourne also. I'm here because I feel passionate about the cause. Um, I feel very moved. I feel very angry. I feel sad. Uh, it's a whole range of heightened emotions that I feel um, uh, in unison with uh, lots of people around the world. Um, as I was driving down here, I was thinking about COVID and how at the start of 2020 and the common threat of COVID, I felt scared. I felt scared of what that would have um, as an impact on myself as a healthcare worker, on my family and all of Australian society at that time. There were so many unknowns. Um, since then, we've moved on. Um, after having all the lockdowns in Melbourne, we moved on. We've gone back to our usual working life, travel, holidays, uh, all the all the life outside of lockdown. But then within a week, you know, um, from October 7th, uh, we've been reminded of the vulnerability, of the brutality um, that still exists in this world, a brutality that's existed for 75 years. Um, and it's unfo unfortunate that, um, that it's only in the last couple of weeks that the world has suddenly stopped to realise now more than ever of the brutality that the Palestinians have suffered. Um, and finally, in, in mainstream social media and in, in media, we are hearing the words genocide, apartheid, racism, uh, col colonialism um, being recognised. Uh, this isn't a problem that just arose since October 7th, but this started from the 1940s and, and even before that. So that's why I'm here. And, um, and I think a, a real turning point in the last 24 hours or whatever, or whatever was the, the bombing of the hospital. Um, regardless of which side was responsible for that. But, um, but for a hospital, that, that's a basic human right. It's just like food and water, you know, healthcare. I, I think everybody has a right to healthcare. And so for a, for a hospital to get bombed like that was just, the, um, was just the next step, the next level in the brutality. And I don't know, I, I don't see any end to, to what could be next. I mean, if a hospital with innocent patients, people that are, that are seeking shelter, uh, can't find refuge in a hospital, then I don't know what else to say. And I guess as a um, doctor, uh, I mean, you must have a great deal of sympathy for your dead colleagues. 
I do, absolutely. Um, it's just so terrifying and it's hard not to look away when I see um, on Twitter, on my Twitter feed and on Instagram and there are various private telegram channels where they're showing footage like actual videos of charred babies, um, of, of dead bodies. There was a footage of, uh, of a Palestinian doctor who was on his shift in emergency uh, in his scrubs and he was confronted with his own son I think or his own family members dead being brought into the, uh, into the emergency department and his colleagues were comforting him. I mean, I can't even fathom or imagine being on a on a shift in an emergency department as I've worked in or an urgent care centre, and my own father or mother or son or, or child or is, is being brought in uh, to be assessed and be dead. I mean, it's it's the next level of brutality. Um, yeah, for doctors, for nurses, for healthcare workers to to die on the job, literally saving lives, um, it's unbelievable. It it, uh, it is a brutality. It's a genocide. It's um, uh, it's a mass killing, and I don't know what else to say. What do you want? Uh, from the Australian government? I want the Australian government to finally recognise the, 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 the plight of the Palestinian people. Uh, I want the, the Australian government to start condemning appropriately. I want the Australian government to recognise uh, the, the atrocities that have been, uh, that, are, uh, that have resulted from this colonialism. Um, from this apartheid state. I want the politicians to use the correct terminology um, in recognising this, this as a genocide. Um, our foreign minister has not done enough. When Penny Wong was questioned about, uh, questioned recently about Gaza and, um, and the stoppage of food and water, um, water, electricity into Gaza, she said, yeah, it's hard to comment from so far away. We're, we're sick of hearing the vague comments. We need, we need clear, hard, um, uh, correct and uh, honest assessments of what's happening overseas, the correct term terminology. It is a genocide and it's an apartheid and this has to be recognised. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks for the opportunity. I'm from 3CR. Hello. Uh, g'day. Uh, you're showing a picture. Who are you showing? That's my friend Yusri. He's a paramedic who was killed a few days ago while he was trying to save people. I'm from Gaza. You're from Gaza. These are my colleagues. Oh, it's so terrible. Um, this is why you're standing here today, right? Of course, yeah. yeah. What do you want to have happen? What do you want the Australian government to do? I want them out of Palestine. It's our country. That's, it belongs to us. They have no right to be there. As simple as that. If you have to say that we are defending our existence, then you have no right to exist. You know, when, when people with... with uh, ambitions and children, families, babies, till you get the hell out of here, this is our land, then you need to get the hell out of there. They all have double nationalities, they all came from other places, they have no roots in Palestine. Palestine is for the Palestinians, it doesn't matter whether you are a Muslim, a Christian or a Jew. Palestine belongs to the Palestinians, period. You can't come from Netherlands and say, well, uh, Solomon, David or whoever, was here 3,000 years ago. Well, the canonized the Arabs were there 10,000 years ago. So you can't take people's homes, land, resources, and everything just because of some biblical crap. That's the whole thing. Now they have shown their true colors. They have shown that they don't want the Palestinians to be there. They want us to vanish, you know? What I see on their platforms is something I knew all along because I lived in Gaza, I lived in Palestine, I know who we are dealing with. And um, 
yeah, that's that's what it is. They want to annihilate us completely. And then we have to say, yeah, sure, why not? No, it doesn't work like this. People by nature are defiant. People are nat by nature will defend their homes, their land, by all means. Well, I must say the response from our government and America and all the Europeans. What did you, what did you expect yeah, yeah, from well, colonial countries? That's, we well, are standing on Aboriginal land. Yeah. This land is Aboriginal. It was never seen, it was taken. They committed massacres to make what you see now as so-called democratic Australia, so-called democratic United States of terrorism, that's what I call it. You know? Come on, how would you expect the end product of a genocidal regime to be fair? They can't, they will not, they will never ever be fair. Well, what I was going to say was, they seem to think that um, pe uh, oppressed people aren't supposed to defend themselves from the de uh, the oppressors. It's it's like it's illegal to fight back. Yeah, this is this is the double standard. If, if so, if if you're not white, if you don't have green eyes, then you you can't you have no rights whatsoever. That's it. It's the white supremacy. It's there. It's out there. It's obvious. And it became more obvious with the arrival of Trump, who was a blessing because he exposed everything. He showed what they are. They are all racist bastards, period. Sorry, I can't be neutral. I'm not going to say, you know, I beg. No, I don't beg. I'm a Palestinian. We don't beg. We take what is ours. We take our rights by our, by our hands, whether they like it or not. So they better like it and give us our land back period. The price for freedom is hefty and we will gladly pay it because we know we will be victorious. That's what my people say. The message I get from my people, and they are under the bombardment, whenever they get a glimpse of internet and they contact me, two words, two words only. We are fine. Okay. It's either victory or martyrdom, victory or death for the for the people who don't know what martyrdom means. Martyrdom means you die for your country, for your cause. Two words: victory or martyrdom. No other option. It, it, these idiots do not learn from history. The people are always stronger than any regime. They don't check how long did the Roman Empire last. 400 years, then they vanished. Now they're Italy, little bitty, teeny, tiny Italy. Persia, how strong was it? How long did they last? 400 years. 100 years in history is like this, it's like nothing. The United States of terrorism is 100 years old, but as fast as it throws, the quicker it will go down. And so all, is all of this. Gaza is the center of the world. Palestine is the center of the world. If the Palestinian cause is not resolved, this world will never ever see peace. Period. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.